Well, Emmaus, thanks again for joining us here as we continue to study God's Word and worship together. I wanted to remind you that tomorrow night through Wednesday night, we'll be meeting at 6.30 each night. And if anyone asks about child care and that sort of thing, we do have child care for birth up through three years old. So if you know friends, neighbors, folks that would like to come and are asking questions about that, we have that opportunity up through three years old. Hopefully you were able to get a copy of the note sheets as we were coming in. There's a white copy for adults and there is a colored copy for kids or kids at heart. So if you ended up with both copies, you can just take advantage of, uh, of that opportunity. We had some crayons and some uh, colored sheets out there for, for kids. If you did not get uh, one of those copies, would you raise your hand so I can know how many more to go, to go make? Oh, good. Looks like we got almost all of them. So, so we will be uh, we'll be meeting at six thirty each of the nights. Other thing I would want you to know about Dr. Kelly invests a lot of time and both preparation and with being here, and so we want to be able to to serve him and his family and his ministry by taking up a love offering. This week, tonight through Tuesday night, if you would like to give to that love offering to be able to, to thank and encourage Dr. Kelly for, for his time and investment, you can write on the envelope, uh, just Dr. Kelly or January Bible Study to indicate that, and put it in one of the black boxes as you exit the lobby. Uh, each of the main exits has a black box on the wall, if you'll slip it in there. And then Wednesday night, we'll pass the plates around and take a formal offering on Wednesday night. So tonight, Monday night, Tuesday night, if this is a good time to give an offering, just put it in the black box. Otherwise, Wednesday night, we'll, we'll take an offering uh, formally during the, the time together. So let me pray for us, and Dr. Kelly's going to get started because I know he has a lot of material. Father, thanks for the opportunity to gather to study your word. Thank you for what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, that we gather around the name of Jesus. We gather under the foundation of your word. And Father, we pray tonight that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you want to teach us. Thank you for Dr. Kelly and for his desire to, to honor you and for this to be a time of worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Owen. Well, um, what I'm going to do tonight is introduction. And uh, I want to talk about prophets, uh, what a prophet was, what a prophet did, uh, and then I want to talk about the book of the 12. Now, uh, you probably are in the habit of talking about the minor prophets because Malachi is the last book of what we typically call the minor prophets, but I'm going to try as much as I can overturn for some of you, you know, maybe 70 years of, of the terminology of minor prophets. I'm going to overturn here tonight that language of minor prophet and I want to replace it with the book of the 12. I'll explain to you why I'd like to do that <laughs> as we go on tonight, and then I'll do a little bit of introduction to Malachi specifically, and then we'll be off and running tomorrow night uh, with, with uh, Malachi, actually the text. So let's start out with a little bit about prophets and prophecy, and if you, on that handout, this is going to be probably the front and back page uh, of that handout is, is all introductory material. I would say there's a general recognition in our own situation and here we are Oklahoma and uh, now newly minted 2017 I think there's a general uh, sense that we are in some distress now I don't want to be one of those people who always says uh, the time we're in is the worst time ever and if we could just go back to some earlier time when everything was wonderful and and I'm not sure there ever was one of those times when everything was wonderful but I, but I do think in a lot of ways it seems evident to me that we are in more distress as a culture uh, than at other times in my own life. I would say that's true economically, at least the threat of, of that. I think violence, uh, not just around the world, I'm talking about violence in our own streets. Uh, we even see incidents like in Tulsa, you remember uh, the black man was shot uh, outside of his car in the street in Tulsa just not long ago, a few months ago. You remember 
what a, what a big story that becomes. And we see a lot of those kinds of stories and people taking sides between, you know, sort of Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and those kinds of debates. But when you peel beneath whatever you think about all those things, there's, there's violence in our streets. There's violence in likely most of your neighborhoods, or at least it's closer than it's ever been before. And that signals some of this distress. There's a, as you well know, there's a sort of a sexual revolution going on in, in a way that now it's homosexual uh, revolution, uh, sort of transgender sexual issues uh, that, that have become front burner in our culture. Uh, I think that uh, political upheaval has been evident as we've just come through this last election cycle. And I try not to talk too much about specific candidates and all, all of that, but I'm, I'm 51. I've not counted up how many elections I voted in, but this was the most distressing election I've ever uh, participated in and just felt like there was a, it was almost a no-win situation. Now, I know not everybody felt that way. I think a lot of evangelicals felt like there was a good choice. Uh, I never felt like there was a good choice. There might have been a better, there was one choice better than the other, but I never felt like there was a good choice. I just think you can see the, the political upheaval uh, that is evident in our own country. And you think about all this, and I might, might echo the words of Lamentations, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns. It's in the midst of times like these, turmoil in all aspects of life, that we listen for voices to make sense of it all, to help us understand what's going on, to help us interpret it, to help us give us some wisdom in the midst of moments like this, and that is precisely prophetic moments. Those are moments when you hear, want to hear the voice of God, often through someone who speaks for God. These are prophetic moments. And all the things I've described about upheaval would be true times 10 in the life of ancient Israelites in 450 B.C. when I think Malachi is prophesying. prophesying. Their world was upside down. And I'll say a little bit more about Malachi's situation specifically, but I just want you to know their situation was one where they felt like, no doubt, the whole world had turned upside down on them, and it had been that way for several hundred years. So, if this is a prophetic moment, when there's upheaval and turmoil and everything seems to be upside down, uh, who are the prophets? And what is prophecy? I don't think we should ever lose sight of the role prophets played in ancient Israelite life. You had kings. It's during the times when kings rise to prominence in Israel that prophets really begin their work. Uh, you might be able to identify a prophet before there are kings in Israel, but they play a minor role in the life of Israel. It is only when you start to have kings in Israel that you have prophets taking on great responsibility. And, and this was the role they played. Prophets were the go-between between the kings in Israel and the people, and in some sense, between the kings and God. You had what had been a theocracy. Israel had been ruled by God. And they had judges, but, ultimately, but finally they were ruled by God. Now they've demanded a king, and God gave them a king. Saul and David and Solomon, and then the kingdom divides. But once you have kings in Israel... Now you have the possibility that the leader in Israel, who is not God, will lead them to do things like worship Baal or make stupid political decisions like siding with the Egyptians or not siding with the Egyptians. And this would lead to terrible consequences, just political decisions. And so who would be the voice who would go to the kings and say, you're making a big mistake? If you do this, God will uproot you and overthrow you and none of your children will, will rule. Guess who did that? It was prophets. They were sort of a checks and balances between God and the people and their king. And this is where they really come to prominence. Now here's what's important about that. It's easy to say things like Jesus wasn't political, prophets weren't political, and it's just dead wrong. Jesus didn't run for political office, unless you wanted to call Messiah an office, but it wasn't up for a vote. 
But Jesus was walking around saying things like, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, you do that in the context of the Roman Empire, which was the only kingdom that mattered in that day. You are introducing a rival kingdom to Rome, and you're introducing a rival king to the emperor. That sounds pretty political. You have the prophets. When you start reading prophets like Jeremiah, you see Jeremiah going to the king and telling him what he should be doing in his policies. I'm not talking about prayer and Bible study. I'm talking about in his political decisions what the king should be doing. They could not have been more political. They did not live in a world that was divided so neatly between church and state or secular and sacred. And I understand the importance of, of having you know, the state not be able to impede religious practice and worship, but there is a danger that church and state gets turned into uh, a tactic whereby Christians feel like they shouldn't participate in public, that you shouldn't live out your faith in public ways. And you absolutely should not sort of mark off here's my private christian life but out here i'm i'm it's the secular realm so i'm not going to introduce that into it those walls need to not be so much a part of the way we think you should be a christian in private and public you should bring your faith into the marketplace you should talk about your faith in the context of important ideas and decisions that might go on in your community or in your nation the prophets certainly did. There, there was no distinction. They weren't ascetics. They weren't monks. They weren't hidden away somewhere just praying for their country. They were engaged in the politics of the day. And as I said, Jesus was also, and he certainly is in this line of prophets. So I think it's important first to see that they were engaged in every aspect of life. They were bringing God's word to every aspect of one's life political as we might think about it private religious in every realm they had a word from god this was the role the prophets played now where do we find prophecy well obviously we have the old testament but here's what's interesting to me we we have books that we think of as, as prophets but in the hebrew bible in the old testament you have a three-fold canon you have the, the the old testament is divided into three sections the first is the law right genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy check got that one the second part of the hebrew canon is called the nebaim that's the prophetic section and it had eight books so eight books of prophecy in the hebrew bible in this collection of prophets the former and the latter. Former prophets, latter prophets. Now notice what I didn't say. Did I say minor prophets? There's no minor prophets in the Hebrew Bible, the way they have died in the Old Testament. Now in the Christian canon, we've divided them a bit differently. But hear the way they are in the Hebrew Bible. You have eight books of prophecy. The former and the latter. In the former collection, you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, we call them 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. They just considered them one book each. So that's four books. They're called former prophets. If you take uh, the prophets class at OBU, you have two options, former prophets, latter prophets. That's how we divide them. And... I'm certain that there are students who sign up for former prophets because they need a Bible class to graduate, and they don't know what books they're studying until they get there on the first day and get the syllabus and discover, oh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Hmm. I, I don't know what students think the former prophets mean, but that's what the former prophets are. The latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Book of the Twelve. Not... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all the way to Malachi. Those are considered one book. It's considered the book of the twelve. And twelve's a nice number for a book, a collection like that. 
uh, 12 uh, tribes of Israel, 12 books of prophecy. That's how the books are in the Hebrew Bible. Eight books of prophecy. Now, what surprises me about that is, one, you have books like Samuel and Kings that are considered prophetic books. We think of them more as history books. But they're actually part, in the Hebrew Bible, of their prophetic collection. So it seems like even the writing of history can be prophetic. Even talking about God's work in the life of a nation, writing out that history of how God had been involved in the processes and life of ancient Israel, is a prophetic act. Did you, did you notice any book that's not considered part of that collection that I think we generally think of as a book of prophecy? Daniel? Not part of the prophetic collection in the Hebrew Bible. It's part of the last section, which is called the writings. That's the threefold Old Testament Hebrew Bible. It's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are your books of prophecy. Now, within that, you've got your book of the Twelve, and Malachi is part of that. I'm coming back to that uh, in a moment. So if you're looking on your handout there, I'm to the place where I'm ready to talk about interpreting the prophets. So I think, hope, hopefully, I, hopefully you get an idea of when prophets arose, what was the period in which they prophesied? They're prophesying once kings come to power in Israel, and lots of political intrigue and ups and downs and lots of troubles in their life, and you have prophets who emerge and speak to those situations. I want you to know what make up the books of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. And then I want us to talk about how we might go about interpreting them. Now, I spend numerous days on this. I teach the How to Interpret the Bible class at OBU. And we spend a number of days talking about how to read the prophets. You don't read a prophet the same way you read Paul's writings or the same way you read a psalm. So what are some of the important things we need to know as we read a book of prophecy? The first thing I would say is you need to place the prophet historically in context uh, i tell my students uh, if you are ever asked a question in class and you're not sure what the answer is uh, jesus is always a good answer next best answer is context in the how to interpret the bible class context is hardly ever the incorrect answer it's it's the need to place any book any saying any section of the Bible in its proper context so that we can understand it well. Well, here's the first thing we need to do. When you, when you open up, and it, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, whether it's Joshua, Judges, 1st or 2nd Samuel, or one of these book of the 12, Malachi specifically, the first question you need to think is, when was this prophet at work? What period in the life of Israel was this prophet prophesying? What was the situation this prophet was speaking to? And it, it, there's only really three centuries where you really have the prophets at work. There's the 8th century, the 7th century, and the 5th and 6th century B.C. All the prophets that I've just talked about, former and latter, fall within this period of Israel's history. In the 8th century, the crisis you have that's emerging, that's, the, that's problematic, is the Assyrian crisis. And the Assyrians will finally invade the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and just destroy it. Topple it, it doesn't even exist anymore after that. And so, you have prophets like Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah. These are prophets who were speaking to Israel in this expectation or in this period when that the Assyrian threat is very real then you have the seventh century the new threat now is for Judah the southern kingdom and it's the the impending Babylonian crisis now the Babylonians have come risen to power and they're threatening the southern kingdom Judah you have prophets like Jeremiah Nahum Zephaniah Habakkuk who are speaking to the people about the Babylonians and the impending crisis, the crisis to come. Jeremiah, for example, is saying things like, it's time for us just to surrender. The Babylonians are going to invade us. We need to just surrender and be carried off into captivity, and it will be a time of purification for us. It will be a time of suffering, yes, but it will be a time when God purifies us. 
And then we'll come back from that captivity and we'll be better, more suited and better suited to be the people of God than we are now. And that wasn't a very popular sentiment uh, among Jewish people. And uh, Jeremiah gets in a lot of trouble, almost gets killed because he says such things. But Jeremiah's prophecy does not make as much sense unless you know what the crisis is and what's going on in the life of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 7, he predicts the destruction of the temple. He basically says, this place is going to be torn down. And it was torn down, 586 B.C., just as he said it would be. So it's important when you're reading Jeremiah to know the thread. It was the Babylonian crisis, and, and, and what he says actually comes to pass. And then you have this 5th and 6th period uh, century, uh, B.C., where now the Babylonian crisis actually does come, and they were, they're carried away into captivity, and now there's the need to prophesy about what to do now and how to put this thing back together again and you have prophets like Ezekiel and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi who are prophesying after that captivity happens and in Malachi's for Malachi's part it's about 450 BC about two generations earlier they'd been released by the Persians to go back to their homeland and in 538, that's when the decree had been given, they could go back and rebuild their temple. It took them until 515 B.C., but that temple had been rebuilt. And I think they thought, wow, this is fantastic. We're back in the land. We have our temple again. It's going to be the glory days. And it didn't happen that way. It took them longer to rebuild that temple than they expected. Economically, the land was still in, in sh just tattered. The people were not obey being obedient to God's law. There was no prosperity. There was no religious commitment to the law or to God. They were still struggling. And that's the situation into which Malachi speaks. After the Babylonian captivity, and then the Persians defeat the Babylonians, now they've been able to come back to their land, and you might have expected it was going to be glorious, but it wasn't. And that's the situation into which Malachi is going to speak. It's going to help you when you read Malachi to have some sense about what's going on, to set the historical context. And we need to do that for any prophet that we read. Now, there was a time when you probably needed to take a class at your local college in order to get that kind of background, but no more. Even a good study Bible uh, will give you some clues. Just And you don't need, you don't need to read m books about what's the situation. It, it's just a minimal amount of information about when this, is, when this prophecy is being given and what's going on in the life of these people will help you understand it. You don't need a lot of information to get context, but you need some. So, place the prophets historically. Number two, understand the function of a prophet. The most misunderstood office in ancient Israel and maybe in, in modern day is a prophet. And here's the misunderstanding. The general sense about what a prophet is is that a prophet is a predictor of the future. Right? That's what a prophet does. A prophet predicts the future. So, we say things like, well, I'm no prophet, but I believe OU's going to win the national championship next year. And, th and that's the way we do it. We, I'm no prophet, but, and then predict the future, because we generally think about a prophet as someone who predicts the future. As if these ancient Israelite prophets just sat around and predicted things that are still to come in our own world. That's not the function of a prophet. A prophet was not a foreteller of distant future events, Prophets were preachers to their own people, calling the people to repent. They weren't predicting the future. Now, on, now not distant future, yes. What was going to happen immediately? What's going to happen if you don't repent? God's going to come and judge you, but not hundreds of years later, like next week, or the week after that, or next month, but within our lifetimes here, within a short period of time. They weren't predicting distant future events. 
They were telling the people to repent or else. And that judgment was likely to come in a relatively short period of time. They were not foretellers of distant future events. They're not providing timelines for the end of the world. They're not trying to predict the future. They're trying to change the future. They looked out at a people who were uh, disobedient to God, and they said, repent or else. They didn't just show up and say, God's going to get you all. They showed up and said, repent or God's going to get you all. And it might be really ugly, like that day of the Lord stuff I was talking about this morning. Let me read you a passage out of Jeremiah 18. It's probably the most important passage I know for just understanding the function of a prophet. Here you get to see something about the heart of a prophet, Jeremiah. It's a familiar passage. It's the passage about the potter and the clay. And and I'll pick it up at verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent, I will repent, some translations will say, of the disaster I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build up and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent or relent of the good that I intended to do. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return, every one of you, from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Now, does that sound like someone who thinks they're just going to show up and say, Here's what God's already determined. He's going to judge you all. I just want you to know. Is that what a prophet did? A prophet said, If you will repent and come back to God, he will turn away from the judgment that is currently hanging over you. If you, who might currently be uh, be obedient to God and God plans to bless you, if you turn from God and you do evil, then God will remove the prosperity he was going to bring upon you, the blessing he was going to bring upon you. So what is a prophet hoping to do? He's hoping to change the future. The prophet believes that by his preaching, God might work and call the people to repent. And if they repent, God will turn away his judgment. They're not just predicting what God's going to do. They're calling on the people to repent so that the future might be changed. When prophets pray, they pray as if their prayers might change the future. Do you pray like that? Do you believe the future is already determined and it doesn't matter what you do or what you pray, that's already set? Or when you pray, do you believe if a person prays earnestly and enough people pray, it might have the power to change events? Something might happen because we pray that might not happen if we didn't pray? That's what I believe when I pray. And when you pray for me, I hope you believe that. That if we pray, and we pray earnestly, and we pray persistently, something might happen that might not otherwise happen. I think this is the way the prophets approached their ministry. They were preaching not just to tell the people what God had already decided to do, but to say, if you will repent, God will turn away his judgment. If you fail to do it, The day of the Lord is coming, and that's why he gives the warning. They are not foretellers of the distant future. They are preachers hoping to change the future. Here's a little say. uh, Lee Eklov says this about what prophetic preaching looks like. He says it's all up in your grill. He says, prophetic preaching cries out to the Joel Osteens of the world 
Wipe that silly grin off your face. Ditch the cute illustration about the little girl in Sunday school and don't even think about using that movie clip. This is serious. Prophetic preaching squeezes people's cheeks till their teeth show. The way your mother did when you were a wiggly kid in church as she hissed in a stage whisper, behave or else. He sounds like he had my mother. I had more than one experience where I got either the look or the pinch or the squeeze or something and the basically in her own way, behave, repent or else. He says, the prophets were the Clint Eastwoods of the pulpit. Go ahead, make my day. I think it says something about the seriousness of prophets in ancient Israel and the seriousness of prophetic preaching. It was not sort of self-help, make you feel good about yourself, here's 10 steps to success in life. It was all up in your grill preaching. Turn from your sin or else. The third thing I would say is to note the basic message. The prophets always seem to come around to about three major themes. And I, I, I tried to highlight them in a subtle way this morning. Even in a prayer, I tried to highlight them. I think there are three issues that ancient Israelites were struggling with consistently. And the prophets kept hammering these, these issues. And the first and above all, number one, and, there, and really a distant second for anything else. Number one was idolatry. This is what ancient Israelites, this was the sin they committed more often than any other, idolatry. Even their kings, think about King Ahab and Jezebel, for example. Even their kings at times led them to worship other gods. Idolatry. This is not just a sin. If there is the sin, it's idolatry. It strikes at the heart of who God is and who we are. To worship something other than God, idolatry, is the sin. It's not just an affront to some aspect of God. It's an affront to God's character and God's nature. To worship something other than God is the sin. And I don't think many of us are likely to carve out images of stone but John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory for idols it's a Calvin quote I think he was right there's something about fallen human beings in our hearts we are more than capable of producing any number of idols that we will worship in the place of God we prioritize things above God. Idolatry is the sin. And ancient Israelites often committed that sin, and the prophets are always railing against it. The second message is, one, you've broken the covenant through idolatry. Two, you've broken the covenant through not caring for the least among you. Sort of what we might call social justice issues. Um, you see how often you see in the prophets something about caring for the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the refugees. I mean, the prophets speak about these issues consistently, and it's unrelenting. That you should care for the widows, you should care for the orphans. These are two groups that are most at risk in their culture. And you should show mercy and love to the immigrants in your midst. Now, the words you'll find in the Old Testament in your translation, it might say sojourner, it might say uh, alien, but a modern translation, the best word for the words that are often translated sojourner or alien, is immigrant and refugee. And it's a social justice issue, it's an issue that God seems to care about in the Old Testament, that we treat immigrants and refugees with mercy and justice. So I chuckled a little bit when uh, Owen got up this morning and said something about your green card in your uh, chair back. I thought, all right, that, that, that's, uh, you, 
if they're giving out green cards here, I expect that's one, pa- one way to grow here. Uh, if, if people hear you get green cards at the Emmaus Baptist Church, right there in the, in the pew rack. But seriously, um, how we care for those who are most at risk, those who have the fewest rights among us, is an issue that the prophets cared about. It was widows, orphans, immigrants, and refugees for them. People who were displaced, who were in their land from some other land, who were without rights, who were without citizenship, and they were to show mercy to them. And I think there are any number of these kinds of issues that we should care about in our day, and we should care about them, not because they're social justice issues, but because God cares about them. And the prophets would talk about these issues. And the third issue is religious ritualism. This is one I don't know that we talk much about, but the prophets are always speaking about how the people take for granted the presence of God in their midst. How big a deal is it that when we come together here tonight, we pray together, we sing together, God's word is spoken, how big a deal is it that the presence of God is in our midst? Isn't that a pretty, I mean, think about that. We're not talking about some two-bit, you know, deity who's down the list of deities. We're talking about the God of all creation meets with us. And you notice, like, in the temple, do you think they took that for granted in the temple? Well, they better not, because you could, you know, if you're a priest and you sort of went in there willy-nilly into the Holy of Holies, you could come out dead. The presence of God was not something to trifle with or to take for granted. And I just think about, and it's me too. I'm not, I'm not here pointing the finger at you all. I'm thinking about it in my own life. When I hear the prophets talking about how God is sickened by their songs and by their festivals and by their worship because there's no heart in it. It, it would be sort of like people who show up on Sunday morning because it's Sunday morning. It's what we do. And, and you come in and all you want to do is get it over as fast as you can and get on with your life. And let me, let me sort of check the box here. Yep, did church. Let me see how quickly I can get out of here today. Got all these things I need to do. We're talking about the presence of God in our midst. And we just want to come in and think about something else and hope it ends quickly and we can get out of here in a hurry. That's the kind of religious ritualism that the prophet said, whoa. The presence of God is in your midst. And it's hard to understand it just from viewing the outside. No, I can't tell. You can't tell. I I look pretty much the same whether my heart's in it or not. You can't tell by looking at the outside. The question is, what's what's on the inside when you come to worship? Uh, I've, I've become convinced that the greatest cereal ever created is Lucky Charms. I don't know who's with me on that. Was anybody with me Lucky Charms, your favorite cereal? Yes, Austin. Uh, anybody else? I, I, obviously, this mic's not on, uh, because, or else you've been, <laughs> people have kept Lucky Charms from you because it's a very delicious cereal. Um. My wife is a wonderful wife, great, I'm so married out of my league, you know, that, that kind of, tr- it's so true in my experience, and, and she's, she's a frugal person, she, she's now not to the point of being a miser, but she likes to save when she can, and so one of those areas where she likes to save is like generic products at the store, and um, I'm all for the generic products with most products but sometimes the generic just does not quite live up to the you know standard and um, I found one of those areas to be Lucky Charms so we had this discussion at some point about nah I don't think we should do the generic Lucky Charms now there's still some dispute in my house about how this went down but this is my I have the mic and she's not here so this is the way I remember it I go to the to the pantry, 
And there's my box of Lucky Charms. And I get my box of Lucky Charms. I fill up my bowl, but I'm skeptical. Something looks askew in my, in my bowl. And, of course, one box revealed that these, in my mind, were not Lucky Charms. They were magic stars. And they are not magically delicious. Now, there's been some denial in my house as to whether or not this was actually an attempt to pass off the magic stars by pouring them into the Lucky Charms box. But I'm pretty confident that's what happened. And I can tell you right now, that's a bad move. Don't do that. <laughs> and it's not happened since, by the way. So I won that one. That's one for me. But on the outside, you know, they looked so good. Everything looked right. But inside, magic stars. Doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. That doesn't. It can look right on the outside. The question is, what's going on in the heart? When we come to worship, how are you understanding what's going on? Is this checking off a box? Is this going through the ritual? Or have I come with some sense that the presence of God is meeting us in this place today? Listen to a passage like Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, which we'll see tomorrow night. He says about priests who are offering sacrifices that are not worthy sacrifices. He says, I wish someone would shut the temple doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar. Your offerings are so abhorrent to me. I just wish someone would lock the doors of the temple. It would be better if no sacrifices were made than these sacrifices be made. In Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, he says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me uh, the, the noise of your songs. I mean, what would you think? If Owen or one of your staff observed that people seem to just be taking it for granted, they... People coming in, talking about everything else, their mind, it's evident their mind somewhere else. And somebody just said, folks, let's just go home. Let's lock the doors until we're ready to come back and acknowledge that the presence of Almighty God is in this place when we meet together. And there's a certain amount of reverence that we ought to have when we meet together in the presence of God. Let's just lock the doors until we can acknowledge something of the presence of God and how profound that is and not come in just wanting to get through this as quickly as we can and get on with our uh, other activities. I mean, you'd, you'd probably think Owen had lost his mind if he did something like that. I had a professor, uh, his name was Curtis Vaughn. He was one of those professors that I had such great reverence for. I revered him, thought he was such a just impactful professor in my life. I had him for a one-night-a-week class on prison letters, the prison letters of Paul. We came in there one night, and we'd taken a test the week before, and he was not pleased with the effort that had been given on the exams. They were far below what he had hoped the students would do. And he talked about this opportunity that students had at this time in their life, coming to seminary. And then he started to get more riled the more he talked, and he had overheard a conversation of a student with the grader who was angry at the grader for the grade that the person had received, and that had him even more riled. So this was Monday night. We met one night a week for like two hours and 50 minutes or something like that. So he sort of talked to us about how, what he thought about our effort and how some had responded to it. And then he said, now, if you think I can stand up here tonight and open up God's word and, and teach, I can't do it. I'll see you next week. And he walked out. And I, sitting over on this side of the room, I just felt like weeping. It, it was one of the most impactful moments in my seminary career. And I can guarantee you that the 35 students who showed up that next week were ready for class and nobody was complaining about whatever grade they made on some exam. 
just trivializing the presence of God in our midst is one of the great sins that the prophets keep talking about. So here's what the prophets preached. One, you've broken the covenant, whether that's through idolatry or whether that's through not caring for the least among you or whether that is making your worship pure ritual. That was point one. Point two was, if you don't repent, there will be judgment. And point three was, if you repent, God will restore and renew you. This was the message of the prophets. You have broken God's law. Repent or else. If you repent, God will restore and renew you. Malachi 3.7 says, Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that a beautiful image? Return to me, and I will return to you. You have strayed away from me. Now return to me, and I will return to you. Now let me say something about the book of the Twelve. Uh, it's, first of all, some accomplishment just to be able to list the book of the Twelve, and I'm not sure I could have done it, except I've had several months now to work on it. But Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. No applause, please. Anybody can do it if you just practice a little bit. But that's the book of the 12. In the Hebrew Bible, it's considered one prophetic work, one book of, of prophecy from Hosea to Malachi. I think it would be much better if we use that language of the book of the twelve rather than the minor prophets. Do you know what the designation major and minor indicates? I mean, would you rather play in the major leagues or the minor leagues? What's more important for a college student, their major or their minor? Don't we talk about it was a minor problem? We think it's something that's lesser Something that's less significant. And that's not true about Hosea through Malachi. These books are not minor in any sense of lesser. We use the language minor because they're all shorter than, say, Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah. But in significance, they are of equal significance. In fact, they are underappreciated. Jesus and Paul and Peter really liked the book of the Twelve. They quoted from it often. Jesus, on more than one occasion, quoted Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God more than burnt offerings. That's a passage Jesus really liked. And Peter, at Pentecost, you know, when there was wind and fire and tongues of fire and people speaking in languages they'd never studied, and some people looking on misunderstood it and said, well, these people are drunk. Peter said, they're not drunk. It's just nine in the morning. They couldn't be drunk. But he said, this is what Joel prophesied. And he quotes Joel 2, 28 through 30, through 32. Uh, God said he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So in order to interpret one of the most important events in Christian history, Peter went to the book of the Twelve. Uh, Amos chapter 5, verse 24, was quoted so often by Martin Luther King, I think a lot of people think he created it, he wrote it, but it was Amos 5, 24, let justice roll down uh, like a river. Nahum 1, 7, a passage you not, might not even take note of, you might not even think of it as a very important passage. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. But I was in Fort Worth, I was taking uh, my kids to a Rangers game, and we went to an In-N-Out Burger. You know In-N-Out Burger? I think you like In-N-Out better than you do Lucky Charms. Uh, In-N-Out Burger is, you, you get the basic burger, which I think is a double, and, and I sit down there with my kids, and must have put my glasses on, because I'm sure I couldn't have seen it otherwise, but I note written on the wrapping of my double burger, double meat burger, probably 800 uh, calories, probably, I don't know, 30 fat grams, something like that. Nahum 1-7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. 
And then I started looking at the other packages, and they all had a Bible verse. But the double cheeseburger, Nahum 1-7, a book of the 12, one of the book of the 12. Go ahead, test me on it. You go check it out, order the basic double cheeseburger, see if it doesn't have Nahum 1-7 on the wrapping. When Paul was trying to figure out how to capture his sense of justification by faith, he found Habakkuk 2-4, the just shall live by faith. He quotes it in both Galatians and Romans. And so I think we, we often neglect the book of the 12, what some might call the minor prophets, but we're not going to call it that this week. We're going to call it the book of the 12 because they're not minor books. So if we could do away with that des designation, I think that'd be a good thing. The other thing I'd say about the book of the 12, one collection I think if you start reading it as one book, you'll find connections that otherwise might be missed. And I don't think they were just haphazardly thrown together in the canon. I think they, are, they, they are, have been weaved or woven together by God's providence in such a way that it's one unified work. Just a couple of ways in which this is true. When you open up the first book of the book of the Twelve, what's the first book? It's Hosea. And, of course, it starts out with God telling Hosea to go marry a woman who is a prostitute, right? Sort of an unusual opening for a book. In chapter 2, God tells him to divorce this woman because she's been unfaithful to him. Well, duh. And then in chapter 3, he tells him to go and reclaim her, and she's already been enslaved, and he's going to have to purchase her to get her back. And, of course, it all becomes a picture of God's love for Israel who has become a harlot through her disobedience to God. But by the time you get to chapter 3, it, it, God has introduced the idea of love very strongly into this book of prophecy. At Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. Then go down to chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loved the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. An allusion to idolatry. So here we have God's love and the issue of divorce. Go divorce this woman and then remarry her as the opening book of the book of the twelve, right? What's the last book of the book of the twelve? Well, that would be Malachi. So if you flip back to, flip to the book that is the focus of our study this week, all the way to Malachi, where does Malachi begin? You have one verse of introduction and then, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You have the first book of the book of the twelve that opens with God's love even for an adulterous nation. A nation that commits idolatry and spiritual adultery. And then Malachi begins with a statement, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then what does God say in chapter 2? Oh, starting at about verse 10. God hates divorce it's this whole section that goes down to oh i don't know about verse 16 uh, when he finally gets around to saying it it's the only other time in the book of the 12 that divorce is ever mentioned so divorce is mentioned twice in the book of the 12 in the first book when god tells hosea to divorce gomer in chapter 2 and then uh in chapter in, in early in malachi's prophecy god hates divorce now, I think it's important when God says in Malachi he hates divorce, I think it's important to remember what happened in Hosea to really understand the depths of God's feelings towards divorce and how much God was grieved by the disobedience of his people that he would have Hosea marry a woman like Gomer and then have him divorce her and then go take her back and buy her out of sexual slavery. That pictures God's love for his people and how much it hurts the heart of God when we are disobedient to him. 
God hates divorce. Those two ideas need to be read together in the first book and the last book of the book of the Twelve. As you start going through uh, this book of the Twelve, if you look at a passage like Joel chapter 3, verse 16, so see if you can find it. Hosea, next book, Joel. And go to the end of Joel. It's going to be chapter 3, verse 16. Now we're in the last verses of Joel's prophecy. Verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and, ut and utters his voice from Jerusalem. You hear that? The lion roars from Zion. That's the end of Joel. The next book in the book of the twelve is Amos. Look at, look at Amos chapter 1, verse 2, after the introduction. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So in the last few verses of Joel, and in the second verse of Amos, you have exactly the same language. Do you see how that weaves these two together it ties these two books Hosea or, or excuse me Joel and Amos how it ties them together they belong together they're not just haphazardly thrown together here they are designed in this way now look at the end of end of Amos it's going to be uh, Amos oh chapter 9 maybe let's see Amos 9 start at verse 11 in that day, that's the day of the Lord reference, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom was that nation to the south. It was often Israel's enemy. Uh, it was a, they, they, there was a nation that looked up there and saw Israel's good farmland and wanted to take possession of it. It was a mortal, natural border enemy of Israel. And they would often laugh uh, and mock Israel in its suffering. And here is a prophecy at the end of Amos of the restoration of Israel and the judgment on Edom. And that's where Amos ends. And then you turn to the book of Obadiah. It's one chapter. And you know what this chapter is about? Judgment on Edom. And the first verse, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So Obadiah begins, Amos ends, and Obadiah begins with judgment on Edom. You see how it ties those two together. These books are not just haphazardly thrown together here. They are the book of the twelve. We would do well when we read them. To at some point read them through from Hosea all the way to Malachi. One book of prophecy. I, I'm out of time to point out other of these kinds of connections between them. But you can see the day of the Lord woven through from Hosea all the way to Malachi. I talked about it this morning. This day coming where the Lord will be a fire, a refiner's fire, a soap, like lye soap to wash you clean. On that day. The day of the Lord. It's woven through all of these books. There are themes that work their way through all of these. They are the book of the twelve. So I want to dispense with the idea of twelve minor prophets that are sort of randomly pieced together here and see them as one book of prophecy, the book of the twelve, and there's nothing minor about them. And then, just in conclusion, Malachi. I think Malachi, we don't know anything about Malachi. We don't have any biographical information on him. I will say this, his name means messenger. Malachi in Hebrew means messenger. And as we go through this week, it's going to be interesting the way he emphasizes messenger. Even in the passage this morning in 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way. So the name Malachi means, in Hebrew, messenger he is called by god with this burden an oracle that god has placed upon him a weight a burden to speak to the people about 450 bc when everything seems to be crumbling around them they've come back into the land they've been carried away they've got a nice bright shiny temple 
but their worship is not right, their obedience is not right, they're oppressed, they're economically impoverished, and they want to know where is the God of justice. And Malachi's got a word for them. And I think if we give Malachi our attention, we just might find he has a word for us as well. Owen, do you need to say anything? Do you want me to dismiss them with a prayer? How about I dismiss you uh, with a blessing tonight? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. Amen. I'll see you tomorrow night. We'll start into the text of Malachi 1-1 tomorrow.